asking you questions about shit. Log Talk Radio. Cool. You hear me, Joe? Yo, what's up? Kevin Owens here. Uh, doing a little podcasting tonight. Joined by Seth Dalabo. Seth is... Uh, we're going to be talking some overseas basketball tonight. Uh, Seth and I both played uh, overseas. Seth, did you hear the music at all, by any chance? Um, I started to hear the beginning, and then I went to silence and beeps. <laughs> We're working with, like, a really state-of-the-art system here. So uh, just, you know, <laughs> hang tight. There's going to be more fun, I'm sure. All right, so uh, Seth, thought, uh, Seth, go ahead. What did you say? I thought maybe you just had a very different intro. I, was, I wasn't sure. Yeah, I did, but it didn't really pan out that way, <laughs> as, as most things. Uh, so, okay, so, you know, Seth and I played together in the for the Roanoke Dazzle, which was uh, a team in the, uh, G Le- or the D League, which is now called the G League. Uh, Seth and I kind of, you know, went through uh, two years together. It was it two years in the, together in the D League? Yeah. As far as I remember, <laughs> two, two two memorable years in the D League, uh, where we uh, both played, and uh, we both kind of had opportunities, but ended up going back there just for the opportunity. So, kind of starting off, I mean, that's kind of where we got our uh, feet wet into the professional basketball. Uh, starting off, like the the D League, now the G League, it's you know the Gatorade call ups are through the roof right now. Was that something that you thought? I mean, I know you you had a lot of people interested in you uh, from the from the D League. Was that something that you? Uh, I mean, uh, that was obviously your ultimate goal to get to the NBA. Right. Well, I think when you look back at it, I'm sure you can look back on it now too. When you look back on at the time, you think you know everything when you're 22 or 23 years old coming out of college. But then you look back on it like, man, I really had no clue what I was doing or no clue what my actual direction was. So for me, the D-League was as much anything as, okay, all I know now is I didn't get drafted. I think I have some interest, at least that's what my agent is telling me. And, And that's always hard to know. Because, once again, you don't know anything about the business at this point, so you're relying on Mm -hmm. somebody that you've probably just met. So you're like, hey, I think my best shot is to go in here to the D-League because I know how great I am at the sport. And then you find out, I mean, yeah, you're pretty decent, (laughs) along with the other 5,000 people coming out this year that are also really good. So it's, mm. I mean, as much as anything, I, I think it was it was great for for guys like you and me that were maybe some borderline guys looking for their opportunity. But as much as anything, it's just a good place to go and get your feet wet and start trying to figure out the professional side of basketball that is is a whole other beast. Well, the the crazy thing is, I was talking to someone the other day, and they were they kept on <clears throat> they were like, "How did you wind up in Australia? How did you wind up here?" And, like, my answer was, like, I have no idea. Like, I don't know how I got from, like, point A to point B. Like, because I guess the same thing with you. Like, you just, 
you played in a league, you impressed, you played in the camps and stuff and you impressed. And then, but like, why would it like a team in Australia be like, you know what, here's a guy. And like, it just be like, and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that they started early and they wanted a guy who wasn't going, who was like a, a fringe NBA player, but not going to an NBA training camp. They, and they were like, well, he's, if he gets invited to a camp, he's not going to get it. So we might as well just take a chance on this guy. And I think that's kind of how, you know, we end up where we are. So your story was, was very different in terms of you uh, took a hiatus from playing for a little bit, uh, you know, after you were kind of like, you know what, what was the, what was the reasoning for you to kind of be like, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to focus on something else. Oh, so for me, and and from a career standpoint, it was a it was a mistake. But from a life standpoint, I mean, I'm I'm somebody that believes it, it was how it was meant to be. So mm-hmm. you know, I get down to the league, and I'm two years in, and I feel like I have. I feel like I should have had more opportunity than I didn't, and there's some frustration involved there. Um, I'd actually. Signed with him in Frankfurt, um, Germany. I remember and I was that. three days. Yeah, I was three. I was supposed to get on the plane three days, and I was kicked going back and forth. Like, man, do I want to go live in a different country, um, or do I want to start my career here as, and try to make a living? Like, I was going back and forth on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wasn't a guy who. I mean, I had my family and friends here that I was pretty involved with, and I wasn't. I just wasn't sure anymore that something that had frustrated me the last couple of years was what I was going to go do in a different country. Um, mm-hmm. When I say frustrated, everybody thinks that they should be playing for the Celtics. Yep. So <laughs> looking back on it, <laughs> hey, could I have, I don't know, maybe, probably along with a hundred other guys that year that also, you know, um, so I was, I, I guess my expectations were a little bit unrealistic. So therefore that's a pretty easy way to get frustrated. So honestly, last minute I decide, you know what? I don't think I'm going to go. I call my agent up and I say, Hey Mike, Hey, I'm not going to go to Germany on Friday. And he's like, Oh, you want me to <laughs> change your plane ticket? <laughs> and I said, no, you can just cancel it. I'm, I'm never going to go. <laughs> and, and I, and I actually had a fairly decent, um, friendship with my agent at that point. I've been with him for two years. And he was like, he was pretty taken back. And I was like, you know, Mike, I'm sorry to give you such late notice, but I've decided I'm I'm not going to go live overseas. I, it's not what I want to do. So good luck with everything. Thanks for everything. See you later. <laughs> so and it wasn't that simple, but it, I did, you know, spring it out of last minute. And at that point, I was planning on not playing basketball anymore. Mm-hmm. That's, that's like, a, I mean, your story is incredible because you, you know, you had a contract to play and, you know, you took this hiatus and during that hiatus, uh, what did you, what, what was, you know, where did you ever think about playing basketball? Was that something you were like, all right, I missed this. I need to get back into it. Well, I guess fortunately, fortunately, and I, and unfortunately, um, I went into the housing industry that <laughs> soon <laughs> fell bottom out. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> That being like another, um, I guess not dead end for me. That's uh-huh. what I do again now that I'm actually retired. But at that <laughs> moment, it was like, 
oh my gosh, this world's hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. You go into something else and you know, we're, it was a family business and it's like, wow, that's, it's tough out here. I think I'll go back to that basketball thing. <laughs> um, and it was, <laughs> it was, um, um, you know, I, I probably, I didn't play much. I probably didn't touch a basketball for six months when I decided I was done with it. And then, you know, you start to get the itch just like anything you've, poured your life into for so many years and I was playing some and um, I was about to get married actually. And just the way life works, you know, it, I, I was asking my wife, like, you know, I could still go play basketball overseas. I, I do kind of miss playing. And she was like, well, I'd love to go overseas. It was literally that simple of a conversation <laughs> that I, I kind of randomly one night and I called my agent up that I hadn't spoken to in a year and a half. And I said, Hey Mike, <laughs> that sorry about for that. Free- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that Frankfurt job. <laughs> but, uh, would you still be interested in representing me and, and maybe giving overseas an actual shot? And I could tell he was leery, like, uh, I mean, if I go out here and work for this guy again and try to find him a contract and he does it to me again, or, and he was, you know, so there's some questions there for him. And he was like, well, why don't you come to my camps and, you know, one in Columbus and one in Vegas, we'll see how you do. So I trained like normal and it ended up turning into my first offer that I accepted and, and actually went to. So you ended up, uh, the first place you went, you, you ended up in Portugal, correct? Correct. Um, so, I ended up playing Benfica, Lisbon, Portugal. And, uh, you know, you're, you kind of, you spent, you know, some time there a little bit as well. Uh, but Portugal kind of became your second home. And how long did you end up playing overseas basketball in Portugal? So I, and Lisbon is an amazing city and Benfica is an amazing club. If there's any soccer fans listening in, Benfica is one of the biggest clubs in the world when it comes to fan support. And I mean, they're, they're very large football is what they would call over there, soccer club. Essentially. Mm-hmm. So that was my first experience overseas and they just are a well-organized club and really took care of everybody. There were no money issues. Heck, in comparison to their soccer players, I was making peanuts. So, um, you know, there was never any issues. And just right in Lisbon, nice place to live. Um, So initially, I had a great experience with them that kind of sets you up for your expectations for everything else. So I I did my first year there. I wanted to stay, but, you know, as any business, you usually have to move to make money jumps. So I did my next year in Frankfurt, Germany. I actually did my next year with that, that very team that I had canceled on. <laughs> so it was kind of ironic. Uh, I ended up playing for the Frankfurt Skyliners, the team that I had last minute bailed on. Um, I ended up playing for them anyways. So I played a year there. Then I played a year in Turkey. So that was my third year I did. I played in Turkey. I was in it was an experience. And then at that point, um, my wife got pregnant and I decided with her being pregnant and having a family that I, I wanted to be, which mm-hmm. was back to, I, I stayed in contact with Benfica. I had a good relationship with them all the way through. So mm-hmm. I ended up signing a three-year deal that is very rare for Americans in Europe. Very rare. And that That's gave crazy. me stability and structure and a place I knew that I was at least going to have my family 
my wife to have her child there and then I had a place that I knew I was going to be for three years that keeps injuries out of the way because everything overseas is usually year to year. So it was a, mm-hmm. it was a good situation for me. Probably um, if I was chasing dollar signs only, I would have at that time stayed in Turkey. But uh, you know how to, most of yeah. your listeners probably do. Once you start having family involved, dollar signs do start to take somewhat of a backseat. So we signed a three-year there, actually ended up playing another four years there um, before I retired basketball. So I did a total of five years in Portugal. Jesus. That was my long answer. (laughs) So we're going to get back to Portugal, but the the, the, when you went to Frankfurt, so you – was there any – I mean, I'm sure it was the same ownership, everything. I know things change over time, but was was there any weird weirdness? Was there any conversations that happened about how you were like, oh, remember that like a year ago when I said I was going to come or two years ago? Like w- was there any conversation at all or it was just like everyone's no, pretending like it never happened? I, I don't think so, and here's why I think that is for them because at that time, and, I, and I'm pretty sure still now, there is no American rule there. Most of your teams mm-hmm. in Europe have an American rule that used to be basically two Americans per team across the board, then it's gone to three, and then, it, I mean, eventually there's going to be no rule on that period, I would, mm-hmm. I would say. But, but Frankfurt and Germany itself was one of the first countries that said, you can have as many Americans as you want. Now, you still had to have five German guys on the team. Mm-hmm. But you have as many Americans as you wanted. So with that, they had so many Americans coming and going that, I mean, I was almost, it almost, I don't even know if we ever spoke about it because I was just one other guy who came and went or didn't go or, you know, they were, they were bringing guys in. If they didn't play well, they'd cut them, they'd bring another guy in. So they were just moving players in and out so much that one guy who didn't get on his plane almost didn't even register to them. Wow. And, and, and Frankfurt, um, the Skyliners at the time, they're not called the Skyliners anymore. I don't even, they went, we went to Frankfurt Skyliners and halfway through the year went to Deutsche Bank Skyliners. Deutsche uh-huh. Bank become our Some new of, yeah. sponsor. Little, little cha so there. They, they had, yeah, uh, they definitely had that. And, and with <laughs> that, with that large amount of Americans, they had such a difference in pay levels between the Americans. I mean, mm-hmm. they had, Guys, I don't know how much on here you talk about pay, but they had some guys making some some large amounts of money. Then they had some other Americans making very small amount of money. So, um, I mean, they were they were running the business. They were trying to get the best players they could for the minimum they get them for. So as long as I came there and performed for what they paid me for, they really didn't care whether or not I had ever done any wrong to them at any point it was like oh cool you're here now glad to see you man so and and not every club would have felt function that way and felt that way but that was just their structure they were a business and they were like hey if you're willing to come here for this now we're good okay let's move on so that was that was just how they that was how they functioned now that's crazy because you know germany like you said the the rule is is in place but uh the discrepancy, was there ever any bad blood? I know I played in a few situations where, you know, the discrepancy in pay was high. And, you know, you had guys that were kind of like pissed off. 
And, you know, like you said before, in the beginning of this conversation, everyone wants to have like everyone thinks they're an NBA player. Everyone thinks that they're on the cusp of the NBA. So if you're playing overseas, you still think you're a, a, a game away from a scout seeing you and you being shipped back in to a 10 day. So was there any bad blood and jealousy amongst, you know, the locker room between the American guys? So I never experienced that on any team. And I think that, and I, I've heard of other stories of that. Um, and I think that was due, I think it depends so much on your captain mm-hmm. of each team, on the leadership of the team. Because if you're, if you're in a situation where it's like, hey, we're, we're in this for the money, when's my next page? I was never on a team that way. Um, mm-hmm. I, immediately when I got there, we had a, a German captain. Um, Pascal Roller, and we had Derek Allen. Derek Allen was our American captain. And mm-hmm. both of those guys were so professional. And, you know, we had a coach that was pretty rough on us that year. Um, when I say rough, I just mean like six weeks of preseason was, I mean, absolute hell on our bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, he was pretty rough on us in practice. And, and not a bad guy, not necessarily a bad guy. or, or Yeah. It, it was just it was his way and it was rough on us. And, and from the day I got there, they're like, Hey man, we've been here for a few years. Mm-hmm. It's going to be rough on you. Like this is going to be rough. So we got to really stick together here. And, and from that moment, everybody functioned that way the whole year. Like everybody was for each other. Um, we knew pretty much what each player was making, but nobody ever really cared or discussed that. There was never any like jealousy issues or, like, man, he's doing this and he's making – like, we didn't we didn't care. We were almost – there was eight Americans on the team that year. and We all went to dinner after each game, uh, usually had hung out at someone's house for a while. Um, mm-hmm. Like, it was a nice city. We found a restaurant here and there to go to. Some guys had families there. Some guys didn't. But I really think that was mostly due to that's how it was from the top. Like, hey, everybody be professional. Everybody make sure they come in here, practice how they're supposed to, take care of business. Hey, whatever you sign for, that's your contract, that's your business. But mm-hmm. when you're here, let's make sure everybody's on the same page, which was also the reason that we went all the way. We beat Alba Berlin the first round of playoffs that year, who had made the final four in EuroLeague. And then we went on and almost beat Bamberg in wow. game five. of the So we almost won a championship, and it was mostly due – to the professionalism that started with our captains. That's incredible. Now, kind of going back on the coaching, because the coaching is a big thing. Uh, that's another question that I'm asked a lot. Like, what are the coaches like? What's the language barrier? Uh, I know most coaches actually speak English. I've had the familiarity of most coaches speak English because they're dealing with so many American players. But you said this coach was rough on you. Uh, you know, you played in Turkey. Obviously, we played together in uh, in Roanoke. What differences did you find between, like, the American coach, like Coach D, or your coach at Wright State, and the guys overseas? Um, so, overseas basketball is a I, – I wish I could have – and I'm sure everyone does. I'm sure you do. I'm sure everybody just plays. Had the knowledge they had at the end of the career – with the same body and athletic ability they had when they were 25. Mm-hmm. Overseas basketball is a much higher IQ basketball. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the ball has to move in certain places, and the defense has to rotate certain ways. And these coaches expect you to know that second year. I was still – by the end of my second year, I was I had a pretty good grasp on it. But it took me a full two years of being around good coaches and good players to really get a solid feel for that and to find where I could excel in it and find my strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as practicing goes, and I, and I don't know – I never played in Asia or Australia – so I can't speak. I was I was always a European player, mm-hmm. and every country really has their own culture. Yeah. Um, not only yes within their cult, but I'm talking about a basketball culture. Like mm-hmm. here's what's expected. Here's here's how the season's going to go. Here's how the practice is going to go. It's almost like each country has their own expectations and own, own basketball culture. Where I, the countries I was in, I mean they worked us hard. Mm-hmm. We were up every morning for shooting weight training, sometimes a run. We came back later that day for a hard practice, and that was most of your days. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. That's a lot of times somewhere between three and four, sometimes five hours of practicing per day. And every day, you, every game day, you had a shoot-around. And we were, there, we were very regimented. There was not – you usually got one day off per week after your game. Um, and then you were right back at it. I mean, it was season that usually lasted around nine months was, I mean, it was taxing. It was not, it was not the glam you think of when you're like, I'm going to be a professional athlete. You uh-huh. go in, you get shot in the morning, and then you show up for your games and you sign autographs afterwards. It was not that. <laughs> <laughs> it was, your check will be in at the end of the month, but until then, I own you, and here's how it's going to go. You're going to mm-hmm. do this. Oh, you think you think that you should be shooting um, shots off screens? Well, guess what? I pay your check, and here's what you're going to do for my team. Well, you care, you're welcome to leave and go somewhere else. And that was the way it was. That was that was their. I mean, and and rightfully so. When when they sign you, they become your boss. Mm-hmm. You know, even within a business here, you may think, hey, here's my strong point for this this job for this company. If your boss comes to you and says, hey, no, that's not what you're going to do for us. You're, you're going to answer the phone this way, and then you're going to sell. Here's your sales. I mean, they, they become your boss. Mm-hmm. So you have a choice. Do I accept this and accept my role? Or do I call my agent and say, hey, if I'm a new team, I don't like my role here. Mm-hmm. If, if you okay. don't accept your role, you'll eventually be cut anyways. So, I think a lot of, and especially college kids coming out, I'll go overseas and make some money. It is, it is a, it is a different business than I think a lot of college kids would expect it to be. Uh huh. And that's the that's kind of the funny thing because you know the the big talk now is overseas basketball with like the you know the Zion Williamson ripping his shoe. And a lot of guys saying, you know, and, and, you know, that's a whole nother show of us talking about the NCAA. We both played in right. college basketball and, you know, what, what we were put through and stuff. And you kind of see it uh, overseas, like you're, you're in the same situation, but you're collecting a paycheck. Uh, and you're, right. you know, they own you, but they own you because it's your job as opposed to a scholarship that's, you know, also getting the kid who's playing the trumpet. So, it's, right. it's a it's a little different. So I think that, you know, when you think about college guys, like a lot of college guys want to 
are talking about going overseas, but that's like a big thing because I think that's like the, the, the almost people think, Oh, playing overseas is like this horrible thing. And I, even you and I, I know even like when my first contract going to Australia, leaving the, you know, I went to Poland the first time and then I came back when I wasn't getting paid. But even that first time where I was like, okay, I'm going halfway around the world. I'm going to get paid, you know, this much money. And, you know, it's, it's, you're leaving your comfort zone. You're leaving uh, your home, your family, your friends, and you have to fly. And I know a lot of people are listening like, well, boo fucking who, because it's like, you know, they're like, I wish I could do what you do. And I think we've both experienced that, but it is, there is some challenge to that, to have uh, a guy, you know, leave his home and, and go and pursue that dream. It's a scary thing. And I think especially for an 18 year old kid, uh, you know, talking about Zion, like a lot of people, it's, it's a lot different when you're 18 years old, even as opposed to when you're 23 or 26 or whatever we ended up going over. But kind well, of going back. Yeah, go ahead. And, and here's the thing people don't understand. And, and you take any 18 or 19 year old that would say like, well, I'll, I'll go overseas and, and make some money until I can play in the NBA. You will get cut so quick because you, as a 23-year-old coming out of college, you will have to start from a low level overseas. Unless you're seven feet with great skill or unless you're Zion, 300 pounds, touching the top of the backboard. If you're just which a pretty good, good – which is – I mean, he's a, he's a phenom. Unless you're a phenom like that, if you're, if you're just a – if you're just a normal – you take Jason Tatum. Yeah. Great player. Going to be an all-star. Going to be an amazing player. Going to be one of the next greats. At 19 years old when he went to Duke – or did he play he played Duke, didn't he? Yeah, he did. If he would have tried to go overseas instead, he would have gotten cut. As mm-hmm. good as he was. Because it is all about ball movement and understanding positioning, and there's no 19-year-old in the country that can understand that yet. So you're going to go over there and you're going to hear the star and you're going to say, get me the ball. I get buckets. Oh, we don't care because mm-hmm. obviously you don't know that um, this pick and roll in this position, you got to make the extra pass. You can't do that. You can't know that as a 19 year old. It takes time. Mm-hmm. Some of that's also why you see some of these European guys coming out of young age and doing well in the NBA. They've been playing club ball since they were 12 years old. They already mm-hmm. understand these concepts. So a 19-year-old from Europe that has the ability comes into our leagues and does very well because they're, I mean, European ball is an IQ ahead of us. We're skill mm-hmm. ahead of them, but they're ahead of us. And even, you know, kind of thinking about like Luca, you know, he was talking the other day about playing overseas, but you're right. Like Luca kind of grew up in that atmosphere. Luca grew up playing in the, you know, learning all those, all those positioning things. So he kind of grew up in that system and now he comes here and he's like, it's easier to score here than it is overseas. And I think we both can attest to that because guys will look at your stats and be like, Oh, you know, like, and you know, there's some leagues I know, like I know when I played in Asia, like averaging like 30 something points a game was easy because that's what they want the Americans to do. They're like you shoot and score every time, but like playing in Europe, yeah, exactly. like you said, the different cultures. But, like, if I think the can, European culture is Europe, different. If you go to a strong league in Europe, Italy, Spain, Turkey, Russia, 
if you go to a strong league in Europe and you are a top scorer in that league on an average or better team, not the worst team, you can't every some players will go over and just that's how they make their career. They play on the terrible teams. They just go there and try to get numbers and move on to the next one. If you mm-hmm. are in one of really those four, or EuroLeague team, or Euro Cup is a little weak now, but if you're on a EuroLeague team or you're in one of those strong leagues and you are a top scorer, you could probably go play in the NBA and average more points mm-hmm. than you did there. It's just different. Which is crazy. It's just a different style of basketball. It really is. And you, uh, and you see most of those guys who do end up in the NBA. I mean, most of those guys that you, if you go right now and you go on Eurobasket, the European website, and you look at the top scores and look, go look at the top scorer in Spain, you'll probably see his name in the NBA next year, and he'll probably be doing very well. It's insane. I mean, it's, that's how strong those, those leagues are. And you wonder, a lot of guys from, from the NBA, you, you always hear the stories, they get drafted, you know, first or second round, like a Dario Saric who gets drafted but ends up playing for two more years on, you know, overseas because, you know, he's just like, what am I going to do here? I'll develop more here. You have my contract, you know, that's great, but I'll develop more in a system like this than I will, which is crazy because, and I think that's something a lot of people don't know about overseas basketball, because this is like all about informing people like what in the world overseas basketball is, because I think there's a miss, you know, people don't really understand the misinformation about what exactly overseas basketball is. And, you know, this is what the insight is. And that's why, you know, I wanted to show kind of talking a little bit more about like some of the nuances of it, because, you know, it's a lost art and like, people don't really no, unless they're even people like I know a guy who was like, oh, I was in a Euro League fantasy league. And I was like, really? But like he had no idea what was going on. It's just like it's a completely <laughs> different world over there. It's like no. Well, and, and the biggest difference I saw over there were fundamentals. They're, mm-hmm. They and they don't have the in general, they don't have the talent and athleticism that our American players have. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are I learned so much so I didn't go overseas until by the time I played in the D-League two years I was a five year student I played in D-League two years I took two years off basically by the time I actually got there I turned 28 that year mm-hmm. from the time I was 28 to 31 I learned so much about footwork footwork in the post, footwork outside footwork mm-hmm. guarding guys it was, they were so footwork based and I was, it was almost like a new inspiration for me. Like, oh, my gosh, how did you do that? I'd be watching some <laughs> of, you know, we always had veterans on the team. And usually usually the veterans at the level I was at had played at much higher levels. You know, they played on this EuroLeague team. And, and I would be guarding them or watching them in practice, and I would see a move they did. And, I'd, I mean, it was almost like, will you stay and work with me? I mean, that was that – was, and it wasn't like – and they couldn't jump anymore. But they would uh-huh. still – They'd move their bodies and footwork, and when they come off screen, like how are you? So and they would, and they had no problem teaching. So I learned so much in those three years um, from some of my veterans, the European veterans mostly. That it was that's where I look back, like man, wish I'd known that when I was <laughs> 25. I mean, that is such an advantage to know how to what to do when you have 
this mismatch and know what to do when you're running off a screen this way. And they teach that. So you watch, watch a college game. Mm-hmm. These guys work in this incredible post position. When's the last time? I mean, you can't guard a European one-on-one in the post. There's no way. No. Because they have so many moves and they have a counter to every one of those moves. We don't teach that. Mm-hmm. We teach position. College coaches are, yep. get down and get low on the block. Now you get it and, I don't know, throw it up or rebound it. Whereas <laughs> Dunk it. Are like, yeah, they're like, hey, if you don't have a right and left-hand jump hook to start, we let, go get that and then we'll talk to you. Mm-hmm. You don't see college players with a right and left-hand jump hook. If you do, they're one of the best players in the league, right? It's true. So why wouldn't we be teaching that to every one of our college players? Hey, let's start with the right left-hand hook. Okay, now let's start with our open-unders. Now let's start with our footwork. Now let's start with our using their body to spin off of. I mean, you watch European players, and it's it's entertaining because it's like, man, that guy is so unathletic, and he's unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs> Which is good for guys like me and you. And we could use a, a few more advantages in that area. <laughs> but uh, not really. Probably more me than you. Um, but it's just, it's just such a different culture there with that stuff. Yeah. And well, I think the one thing you hit on, which is which is something that I noticed too, uh, if you're in a, if you, I mean, and I think the most successful American players are like this, but there's good vets, but there's also guys who, you know, I played and and even at the end of my career, I'm like thirty something years old, and there's guys that are younger, but they've been playing on that team for a long time. I mean, we're always guests. Like we're coming to a new team. I know you, you with Benefica, you, you played, you had that contract, but like you said, everyone's jumping from ship to ship and it's constantly, constantly moving to a different team. And I think the, the crazy thing is like, you'll get there and there'll, there'll be a guy might be five years younger than you, but he's been in that system since he was on the youth team, you know, 10 years ago. And he'll sit there and work with you. And that's a crazy thing because how many people, and I mean, I think you and I are kind of, the reason we were successful is our egos. We had egos, but at the same time, we didn't let them like destroy us. And I was always willing to, if someone was doing something better than I was, I wanted to learn how to do it so I can get better. And that's something that I think a good, that, that happens a lot more overseas. You don't, you won't see that in the NBA or the D league. Like guys aren't going to listen to guys who are younger than them. And, you know, even like the, it's just, even if like the young guys aren't really listening that well, look at the whole, all the stuff with Kyrie and, you know, he's talking, calling LeBron, like these kids don't listen. It's just, there's such an ego in the NBA as opposed to overseas. Did you notice that as well? Well, and and I think a lot of it is, it just depends on the person. It depends on Mm -hmm. what I found out the most about myself when I signed my three-year deal. Because me, like everyone else, and it was retirement money, but it was a it was a, a very nice three year deal I had signed. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. and even kind of joking with my wife, like it's gonna be cool. Because <laughs> I'm <laughs> being taken. No, I got three years. They take an NBA guy and he signs a forty million dollar. They're like, this is cool. Like injury, you know. I felt like I felt safe. Like mm-hmm. like have this amount of money coming for three years. If we lose and we're supposed to win, it doesn't matter. Guess what? Y'all got to pay me next year. And if I get hurt, guess what? Y'all got to pay me next year. And no matter what happens, like I'm paid. So it's cool, right? That'd be a very easy attitude to take. Mm -hmm. But what I found out was when I signed that three-year deal, I cared more about winning than I ever had. 
because I didn't have to worry about my own numbers. When you're year to year, you have to, yeah, you want to win because the next year's team is going to look at, see what your record is. But they also mm-hmm. want to see, like, why did Kevin Owens go from averaging 17 and 11 to this year he averaged 12 and 4? So mm-hmm. I guess he's not as much. So I didn't have that pressure. So all I wanted to do was win. And even if it meant, like, you know, we had a we had a fairly selfish player on our team that year. That's fine. Take more shots, dude, but you got to play D because I'm trying to win. Yeah. And I would get mad. Normally I wouldn't care. Like, I'd probably be mad the other way. Like, hey, man, you're shooting every time. I need my numbers too or you're costing me money. Uh-huh. I didn't have that. So all I cared about was winning. And it carried so much through our locker room. And then I looked back and I was like, oh, that's what those guys were doing when I was in Frankfurt and I was there last time. <laughs> Those guys had multiple-year deals, and those were the kind of people that were. They wanted to win. That's why they were taking me like Seth. That's fine. We got to do it this way, though. Hey, that's fine. Mm-hmm. You can take that shot. Fine. But but then we got to trap this way on this. Like I'm like, oh, that's why they cared because they wanted to win. Mm-hmm. So I think it depends on the person because I know a lot of guys. You give them a multiple-year deal, and they're probably going to spend half their year in a training room chilling, saying, uh, yep. I don't know, I got some mates here and there, and. So I think it just depends on the person, and you give a lot of these NBA guys, they're all getting multi-multi-year deals with big money. So they're sitting back there like, okay, we won, but, I mean, chill out, guys. Like, it's not that big a deal. All right, we lost that game by three, and I didn't really play much defense, but, you know, I'm, I'm James Harden, so that's the way it is. So I, I just think it depends so much on personalities and – and you're giving the entire NBA that option. So you're going to mm. get a lot of guys that say, I'm cool, I'm set, don't worry about it, I don't care. Now kind of going from like the on-court stuff to more of the, you know, off-the-court stuff. Uh, you know, you played in several places. And, you know, I contracts come and go. I know I was offered a contract in Syria. And I was like, what? Mm. I mean, this is like the bottom of the barrel. This is end of my career when they're, I was just like, all right, I mean, it's something, it's money, but mm-hmm. you know, it's a little, it's a little shady. Were you ever in a situation where you're like, I don't know about this. Like, I don't know about this team. I don't know if this, this is a little sketchy. So, so I started in Lisbon, Portugal with a big club. <laughs> Obviously that was easy and safe. The next year I went to Frankfurt, Germany. That was easy and safe. Like those are two well-known big countries. Everybody's, who's traveled to Europe, has been there. So you feel the, at the end of my German year, um, my agent, we were in the playoffs at the time, he called me and said, hey, the team in Ukraine is really interested in you. And I was like, really, Ukraine? Geez, that sounds rough. And he was like, well, what do you want me to do? You want me to tell him no? I go, I mean, throw him a number out. <laughs> Whoa, no sense. I mean, to say no. Yeah, what kind of agent are you? But I was – but I was, you know, it was just me and my wife, and I was in money check. I was, I wanted to further my career as much as I could, as fast as I could, because I had a late start, and and that's just the, if I was going, that's the kind of person I was, and if I'm going to do something, I want to see how far I can maximize it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he calls me back and says, "Hey, I threw him out this number, which was a number more than I was worth at that moment," and he goes, uh-huh. "They accepted," and. And it was a number that I definitely was willing to try out Ukraine for. And I remember I got off the phone. I was like, hey, so 
my wife was there with me. She she was always overseas with me. Um, okay. And I was like, hey, so we're going to be in Ukraine next year. And she was like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? And I was like, yes, the Ukraine. That's not like code name for anything else. <laughs> going to live in Ukraine. They're sending over the contract. Well, it ended up falling through two weeks later. I actually signed the contract, and the owner of the team came back and said, hey, um, the coach made that decision. We have decided we we're not going to pay one player that much. So my basically came to me and said, "Hey, what do you want to do? Because I have a contract here. We can take this to FIBA, and you will get your money. But sometimes that takes the entire year, and you can't play somewhere else while we're going through this litigation." And uh-huh. I said, "Well, obviously, I mean, I can't sit out the year. Who knows what happens to your value in that time?" That's a no big deal. And that's when he started talking with the team in Turkey that I actually ended up going to. And I made substantially less than I was going to make in Ukraine and Turkey, but it was still mm-hmm. my biggest contract I ever made. Um, so you never actually stood, stepped foot on on Ukrainian I soil? I did, but I never stepped into Ukraine. But the <laughs> thing was, I was like, told my wife, hey, cool, we're not going to Ukraine, you're safe. We're going to Turkey. And she was like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and what in what way is that better? <laughs> I mean, what do we know about Turkey? You know, it actually ended up being a, a completely fine place to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, we, but we didn't know. We were in a small town in Turkey on the Greece border. It was right on the border of Greece and Bulgaria, um, about two hours west of Istanbul. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we don't know anything about We're thinking this is a Muslim country. Everybody's going to be wearing veils, right? Like, we, don't, yeah. we have no idea. We have no idea. No, it's not. It is all like right when we get there, we we get to the mall, and every mall and every store has metal detectors to walk into it. I'm like, oh my god! Like, there are obviously just bombs everywhere. There's metal. <laughs> it wasn't the case, but I mean, it's just it is nerve wracking going into a culture that you don't understand or know anything about. And you know, there's a Muslim culture we didn't know anything about the, the Muslim practices. Mm-hmm. Um, I do remember the very first night we stayed there. And it's just an old tradition in Turkey. Everywhere in Turkey, every hour starting at like 7 a.m., they play blast a prayer over the loudspeaker. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, their prayers don't sound like ours. <laughs> um, it was basically just someone singing uh, like you would imagine in like um, a war movie. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, yeah. First night, we got there at like midnight. Um, they took us to our place. They had a nice place for us, and we're like dead tired. We've been traveling all day. It's a 13-hour flight, and we get there, and then, you know, we're jet lagged. And at 7 a.m., we hear a we what we think is a siren that sounds like oh, we're like oh god, we're we're dead. <laughs> it's over. But you know, that's just an old tradition there, and, the, and it happens like four times a day throughout the entire country, and nobody even pays any attention to it anymore. You know, everybody, nobody even stops, everybody just keeps walking and acting like, you know, there goes the loudspeaker again. So, I mean, it's just stuff like that that you could think is a big deal, and you see it in the movies, like, oh god, but then you're there, and it's, I mean, it's just it's nothing. Everybody's dressed like you, and everybody treats you well, so it is, um. But there's always some nerves going into something that you don't understand or, or, or know about.
No, I totally. Uh, that's like, I don't know. The the, I I totally. I think the biggest thing is trying to understand that like cultures, like you said, you're walking into a culture that's not your own. How how are you going to assimilate yourself? And. Mm-hmm. That's like the that's a scary thing, especially, I think, you know, as Americans, the Muslim countries were, you know, the Turkeys and, you know, I was in Kosovo and that was a very Muslim country. And it was there was like this this kind of thought in your mind that someone everyone's out to get you because you're an American and no matter what you've done, you're an American. And, you know, we deal with the stereotypes and you kind of see those stereotypes when when we deal with like Muslim people in this country. And you kind of feel like that as an American in a Muslim country, you hear that, that like prayer and it's like, you're jumping, jumping down. You're like, what the, this is ridiculous. Like something well, bad is going to happen to us. And, and I think, and you can probably attest to this, you see things and you hear everybody's stereotypes of stuff. You know, you talk to some, there's plenty of ignorant people everywhere in all walks of life, but you all have a lot of people Oh, you're over there in that Muslim country? No, it's not what you think, man. Mm-hmm. There, there are us there. They're the ones <laughs> wearing the veils. And, and, and I had guys on my team, I mean, they, they hate them in that country. They mm-hmm. hate them. They hate the extremists as much as we do. Yeah, yeah they are the ones that have a, a weird set of beliefs and could potentially do harm to people. They, they hate them because they're mm-hmm. like, that's not us. That is their version of the same religion we are, but it is their version, and they give us a very bad rap. They, I had teammates. <laughs> there was one. Uh, she was an elderly woman, and she was dressed in the extremist gear. He stopped and cussed her out. I was like, man, that seems harsh. Like, <laughs> you good, man? <laughs> you know, that was, a, that was an old woman, right? You know, she was like 70. No, 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 I can't stand like, okay, I mean, I'm just saying, she seemed like she was 70. <laughs> but that's how much they... I'm just saying that under all of that was a 70-year-old woman. <laughs> right. But that's how much they hate them because of the name they get from it and the reputation they get from it. And they know that, that people don't... You know, we've had we've had Christian groups do terrible things using mm-hmm. the name Christianity in our, in our country. Now, yeah. imagine... If people in other countries and other parts of the world were looking at that like, man, Christians are, are really messed up, would be like, no, man, that's their group. <laughs> and, you know, that would be frustrating. So they have that same frustration. Um, so I'm, I'm by no means a Muslim, but I have a lot of friends I've developed over the years who are, especially playing in Turkey. I still have guys I talk to from Turkey. And mm. I hate they have that rap because they're good people just like us, whether or not I agree with their religious beliefs or whatever that, that I mean they're not dangerous people and they have a right to have a different set of beliefs than us mm. so I think it gives you a much um, different view on when you see things on the news or this you're like is that really or because I know some people in that area um, <laughs> and that was just my experience I, I haven't been to you know I haven't been to Kosovo and I don't I don't know what that was like you you'd have to tell your stories on that, but that's just, that's my experience on it. It's not what you think it's going to be. No, I totally agree. I mean, uh, the scariest places, you know, I think the, like Kosovo was a little frightening in terms of, you know, how the people, uh, you know, it was a war zone 
for so long. And, you know, like in the nineties, Clinton came over and kind of saved them. So they, they do love Americans because Americans kind of saved them uh, in like the Serbian wars. But like, <laughs> it still was scary. Like the, you could see remnants of bombs everywhere. You know, when we drove from town to town, like shacks still were like half blown apart. And there's just like some of these countries that don't have money, you're kind of you're just a guest in these places, and you realize that you're a guest, and someone's paying you to be a guest and play basketball there. But like these people live there every single day. This is their life, their life, and it's it's a little crazy. Because and you say that about the good places too. I'm sure you look at Portugal and you're like, that's crazy. Like they're living on this like beautiful place every day. I think about that with Australia, but you always think about like the bad places and like the scary places. And there's definitely some, some frightening places. I mean, have you ever heard or like, have you ever gotten a contract or offered anything that involved like the middle East or uh, anything like that? I, so, and you've, you've probably experienced some of this. You kind of pick your path in basketball. Uh-huh. Um, you can go try to do the Asian that which guys make, crazy amounts of money in China, but it's a completely different structure. It is not, it is not IQ basketball. It's one-on-one and, but the Americans can make some insane numbers or you do the, but once you're, once you're in the European basketball, a lot of some European guys will go and try to chase one of those checks towards the end of their career, which is probably what I'm assuming you did where you said, because you can't go, you can't go play in one of those countries and then mm-hmm. say, and now want a European contract again next year. No. European, done. European leagues look at that like, oh, you went over there and played dummy ball for money. Uh-huh. So you kind of pick your path. I don't know why, but my agent, I, maybe he thought that that was the best path for me. But he put me in the European league and tried to build my way up from there. So I never – considered going to an Asian league because it would have cost me the work I had done to build my name and the, you know, I went played Portugal and I was in Germany. I was in Turkey, which was probably the strongest league in Europe at that moment. And I was going to keep chasing, but you know, I wasn't comfortable having a child there. Um, no, I to- I totally agree. That, so and it, I know it's fine, and if I'd have been one of the big teams in a big city, I'd have been just fine. My wife having her our son in Istanbul or one of the, but I was in a small team there, and I it would have been great to get a offer from one of the larger teams in the larger cities. But you, you know, you're talking big, big money for for those players, and I didn't think that was going to be my contract level. So I, I just wasn't – we were in a small town there, and I wasn't – there were – so in the town I was in in Turkey, you could see a Mer- like a AMG Mercedes drive around, and then you would see plenty of people with a horse and a wagon, and that horse was like it might die any moment, and they're going around <laughs> checking garbage cans. I mean, so that's that's the that's the world I was in, and I was like, all right. <laughs> We're not going to our local hospital. I remember I needed stitches once, and that drove me two hours distance to the hospital. Jesus. So I wasn't willing to have 
my wife in a position where we needed to drive two hours if she needed any type of quick help or we had to go to the local hospital. I mean, that's just the way it is when you get in those countries that are moving more towards two classes, the rich and the poor. So I wasn't willing to expose her to that. Well, it's crazy because, you know, that's your it's, – it's funny how you go through professional basketball, but at the same time, it's that prime time to start a family. So, you know, your 20s and your 30s, when a lot of guys play, you see the NBA got a lot of families and stuff like that. That is something that you, you made a d- direct choice uh, to, to better something for your family. And I think that's something when you, if you're chasing the money, and I think there are guys who are trying to build families and they're chasing the money. And I know towards the end of my career, I was trying to just chase the money because I played in Asia and I was like, kind of like, all right, well now I have to go to the shitty countries in Europe. And I was trying to chase the money and it was like that prime time to have a family. And it was kind of like you put off having a family to, to keep chasing the dream, which is crazy. But I'm, so you guys went back to Portugal and uh, were able to then get better benefits and stuff like that. Are you talking like health wise? Yeah. So um, I still laugh about this as I, we we're, uh, we still pay for our health insurance just individually because we're, we're our own company. Um, mm-hmm. And I always, but every year I go to that, I'm like, you remember we played in Portugal, right? So you don't have to have health insurance in Portugal. And, and Ashley mm-hmm. was, when we first got there, she was already four months pregnant. So uh-huh. we needed to move quickly on this. I remember they, we went in there and they're like, you don't have to get insurance, but if you do have insurance, you get the top of the line hospitals, like you will get to use this one here in Kaishkais, which was, I mean, like they're very wealthy area. I'm like, dang, okay, that may be worth it. How much is health insurance? They're like 500. Man, 500 a month. Oh, they're like, no, 500 for the year. <laughs> what? <laughs> so is euros, which is like, you know, 600 bucks basically for the year. And you get to all the top facilities. So that was a no-brainer. So I always carried health insurance. Cooper was born there. Never cost me a dime outside of that. Um, I remember um, just to show you the difference in their healthcare system, which which it's it's not always perfect. Um, there are downfalls with that too. Some of their facilities are run down, and but still, I mean, you still have pretty good doctors there, and everything's taken care of. And especially if you pay your incredible amount of. 600 bucks a year, then you get all of their top level stuff. So, um, <laughs> you can be a doctor for 600 bucks. Right, right. So, I remember, um, Ashley had to go and get some medication. She was not to put all of her business out, but she was taking some monthly medication for, like, I don't know, thyroid or something like that. Um, mm. and, and she had always gotten like six months of it in America before she left. That's mm-hmm. Even with our copay and what, whatever here. So she had needed adjusted. She had a, whatever that doctor is she was seeing there. I don't even know. And she said, well, I need to adjust her medication. You're going to have to get this medication. She was like, dang it. Like, I have to get the medicine here. Uh, like, it's, it's probably less expensive for her. And I was like, actually, you just got to get it. So she went to the, it was just for one month. And she goes to the pharmacy and, they give it to her, and they're like 190. And she's like, "Oh, mm-hmm. 190? 
that's actually not that bad. I was thinking it was going to be way more than that. Then she handed them her credit card, and they're like, you don't have a dollar ninety. They're like, you don't have two coins on you. She was like, oh, it's, it's a dollar. No- I, it was two dollars. <laughs> now she was like, her copay was like three hundred dollars a month. Here we were usually getting six months of it for eighteen hundred dollars, and thought we were winning. Two dollars. So that That's just insane. shows you. That just shows you what we're what's being done to us over here. That's why. That's why you got guys owning. Owning yachts that are are in the sales of that stuff. It's true. That's that's insane. A dollar ninety. All right, now Uh, let's go in (laughs) one ninety, please. It's like a French fries. Like, uh, (laughs) uh, all right. So now let's kind of go in the last few minutes. Uh, Your, you know, more of like the the fun, like the the things that you did off the court, not the scary stuff, but like the cool things. Like, what was your best experience off the court when you had some time to kind of be yourself for a little bit? <laughs> well, we won't talk about our D League days together. Oh my um, God, please, yeah, that we need. To, all right, so Seth's gonna come out and do another show. We'll talk all about the D League. It's gonna be a lot of trouble. <laughs> so once we were no longer He's trying gonna... to act, we were college kids. <laughs> yeah. Once there was a family. And, and, you know, we always had great – some of our best friends we ever made are overseas. They're always mm-hmm. – my average teammate age was probably 30 by the time, mm-hmm. you know. So when I first got there, I was a kid at 28. Um, mm-hmm. So one – we and everybody had kids about the same age, whether it be Americans or – but even outside of that, let's talk about, you know, we always had, you know, some team – functions or we were always going to dinner with another family afterwards or over to their house or, you know, they're big on wine over there. Um, mm-hmm. So always, and, and they're, you know, we, we go to dinner over here. We're trying to sit down, eat, uh, maybe grab a bite of dessert and we're out. I mean, the average dinner in Europe is like four hours. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, first you have some bread and you talk and you have a wine and you eat. So that within itself is a different piece of the culture. But, you know, we always had teammates, and we always had to have some, some guy release time. And uh, <laughs> it's, it was crazy to me how late everything functions, especially in Portugal. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, every once in a while we'd say, okay, the whole team's going out tonight. And going out is a lot more uh, culturally the, the wives were like, would tell you, hey, you know, go out to the disco for a while and hang out with your team. It wasn't like a, it was a more relaxed uh-huh. environment. Whereas, you know, if I tell, if I'm at home now and I tell my wife, hey, I'm going to go to the bar till two, she's like, what, are you out of your mind? <laughs> but over there, you know, it's just part of their, it's part of their culture to where they're like, yeah, go to the, go to the disco with your team for a while, hang out. So the first time that we were going to do that um, is after the game. I was like, hey, okay, let's, um, we'll go out to eat here with the family. And then what time you guys want to meet up? He's like, well, I'm going to go with my family too, and then I'll take a nap and I'll meet you out. I'm like, what do you mean? You're going like, you know, nap from like 11? He's like, no, I'm going to nap from 12 to 2. Like 2 a.m.? Let's go. Like, that's when we'll go home, right? No. If you go to a disco over there at 1 a.m., you're going to be the only one standing in there. Everything was from 2 to 5 in the morning. That's crazy. Oh. So, that within itself was like, but 
what do you mean? Like we're starting at two? <laughs> so that was just, that was just a, a part. Of, and then if you wanted to, they had after parties where they would still have lines out and the, the sun was coming up. I'm like, is everybody doing coke around here? Or like, why isn't anybody tired? Go to bed. Why are you? Why is no one going to sleep? The sun is coming up. But that's just that was just part of their culture. Like, if you went out, it was a very late. You know, the family's been down for hours, and then you go. So it was. But we would do that probably once every couple months. We'd all the whole team would get together. Would go out somewhere. Um, you know, they're still playing like 80s and 90s music in the disco. Oh, yeah. So, like, literally, I'll be like, okay, I'll be over here at the bar because I'm not dancing around here like you guys are. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but it, we always had a good time with that. Normally, we'd go to a disco or something um, and, you know, get a bottle of something and pretend we were superstars, even though we knew we were just European basketball players. <laughs> <laughs> well, Seth, we have to do another show just completely predicated to the D League because that's like exactly I don't, what I don't that's know like, that we're allowed to tell D League stories on air. There's, like, it's going to be bad. I feel like we need we need like permission permission from some of those guys because the stories that we have from the D League are are fucking detrimental to people's lives. <laughs> First of all, we never use names yeah. <laughs> or like there would definitely be lawsuits and then like there would have to be some sort of warning you would do for your listeners like listen this is gonna you're about to hear some crazy shit if you don't want to hear it then stop listening <laughs> yeah, just turn it off if you want to hear it just understand that there's going to be it's going to be fucking detrimental to your soul. You won't, you, you're not going to walk <laughs> right, and you're just fucking sitting there listening to it. I, I know you and I have discussed these stories enough times, and I <laughs> I would like to hear you tell some of them and be like, and make sure I'm remembering this right, because there was some stuff that went down those two years that seemed <laughs> like should be, like maybe I was dreaming this or something. That was pretty young. <laughs> That was pretty far out there. <laughs> yeah. There were some things where I've never seen anything like that before. I'm like, I can't believe people live like this. Like, this is like real life. And, and I'm sure this depends on when we had some characters around us. All good guys, but definitely, definitely different walks of life. Yeah. Um, but I still tell some of my friends, they'll be like, hey, tell that one story. You know, we'll, we'll be having some drinks, whatever. I'll be like, okay, man. But um, let's go another way. <laughs> Where the wives don't have to hear this because it is it is abrasive. <laughs> <laughs> it's very abrasive. Oh, that's awesome! All right, Seth. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on tonight. We'll definitely do this again pretty soon. Uh, talk a little bit more more overseas basketball, and we will try to get some waiver forms from some more players <laughs> to tell these stories. <laughs> People will be guessing who in the who in the, who was doing this and who was doing that. <laughs> Maybe we could tell the stories and give them a list of the roster and say, apply what players you think to which story this is. Put it on Twitter. You're like, highlight, okay, now highlight the name of the player you think did you this horrible, horrible, yeah, horrible, horrible act on another human being. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Seth. Well, thank you so much. Seth Dalabo. 
uh, joining us tonight, talking a little overseas basketball. We'll be talking more about this uh, pretty soon. We'd like to thank you guys for listening tonight and uh, follow on iTunes. Uh, hit us up, uh, the Matchup Zone on Facebook. And uh, yeah, we'll uh, talk more some another time. Seth, thank you. Thanks, Kevo. See you later, buddy. Later. All right, people, we're out. Yeah. Mm-hmm.